begin with, I want to make sure you can hear me. I'm not on? So I have to turn myself on. used to have to have a voice, now you just have to have a mic. All right. Well, first of all, it's, I am most grateful to be with you again uh, and to renew your acquaintance and see some folks that I haven't seen in a while. Pam and I are uh, always happy to be with the Watson family and um, we're grateful for what we see, what we hear that the Lord is doing here. You know, in our day of instant gratification, and <laughs> did I do that? Okay. We're good. In our day of instant gratification and quick fixes. The church is apt to think that if we don't see fast and furious growth and success, that we are not successful. I hope and I think that that is not the case here, that you are willing to watch the Lord do things over time and build in the lives of his people. And... Uh, I believe the Lord is doing that. In some ways, you are an answer to my personal prayers. Because for years, when I was a pastor in Mississippi, and at other times, I prayed that the Lord would raise up biblical ministries in the, the tri-state area. And I was really concerned as a young man who grew up in Henderson and um, personally experienced what was in some ways beneficial to me, but was also not as strong in terms of good expositional teaching and preaching from the Word of God. And so my burden was, and even hoped that someday the Lord might send me back here to be a pastor. That didn't happen, but the Lord has, it seems, raised up some churches where the Word of God is central and where there is good biblical growth. <clears throat> and so I'm, I'm glad for that, and I'm glad for you to be a part of that, it's exciting to me. What is this? What is this book we call the Bible? Well, you may say it is the Word of God. And you would be right. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is history. It is poetry. It is prophecy. It is biography. And it is theology. It is God's revelation of Himself. His communication of His will. The summation of truth. And the manifestation of His Son. It is both mystery and certainty. 
There is nothing to compare to or with the Bible. Nothing. If we could just realize what we hold in our hands, what lays in our laps, what we read on our device now. It is more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. Those are metaphorical words, but the metaphor points to something greater than the metaphor, right? We use a figure of speech. We don't use a figure of speech in order to lessen the impact. We use that figure of speech to increase the impact of the truth behind the metaphor. It is sweeter than honey, more to be desired than gold. It is more necessary than physical nourishment. You die physically without physical nourishment. You die spiritually without the Word of God. It is both a warning and refreshment to our souls. And in the keeping of it, there is great reward. It outweighs all opinions and ideologies. And has stood the test of time. <clears throat> it is the rock that breaks all who seek to crush it. But what does our text say about the Bible? We've shared many concepts that are true when we say the Bible is. But what does our text say? And what other ways can we describe it? Let's look at Peter's. God-inspired words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You have before you your particular translation. I'm going to give you a personal translation. I don't claim to be a scholar, but this is, I worked through the text, and so I hope this will help sort of broaden and expand our understanding of and appreciation of what Peter says here by God's inspiration. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 18. Knowing, understanding, discerning that you were not redeemed or bought and thus delivered from your fruitless, unprofitable, and meaningless way of life with something perishable or corruptible, such as gold and silver, that was handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious, costly blood of Christ, like a blameless and spotless Lamb, who stands indeed as one foreknown and appointed before the laying of the foundation of the world, but was made to appear at the end of the times for your sake, on your behalf, who through him are believing and trusting in God, the one who raised him from the dead, giving him glory, so that your faith and hope might be centered in God, your souls having been purified by the obedience to the truth, through the Spirit, unto unhypocritical brotherly love, then love one another fervently, out of a pure heart, having been regenerated or born again, not from corruptible mortal seed, but by what is immortal and incorruptible by means of the living Word of God, which abides, continuously abides unto the ages. Because all flesh, all humanity is as grass and all glory of humanity is like the flower of grass. The grass is withering and the flower of it fading. 
But the word of the Lord is continuously abiding unto the ages. And this is the word which is being proclaimed as gospel to you. In what sense then is this book, the Bible, Scripture, Gospel? Peter, I believe, shows us in our text, and that's what I want us to think upon today. And maybe as the day goes by on the Lord's Day, you can think upon it, maybe with your family, rehearse some of these things, maybe throughout the week. But I want us to think about Scripture as gospel. <clears throat> We're going to begin, and there are actually three th- things here, three main things in this text that Peter writes that show us why we believe Scripture is gospel, why Peter would say in the last part of this thought that this word which has been preached to you as gospel is what he was talking about. The first thing is that Scripture reveals the foundation of the gospel. Scripture reveals the foundation of the gospel. The gospel as we see and know it in the New Testament is not some new idea. It is true that certain elements of the gospel became more clear as the New Testament era approached, but the gospel was there in the Old Testament and it was not obscure or confusing. Abraham, uh, Galatians says, Paul says, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he said to Nicodemus, after basically sharing some elements of the gospel with Nicodemus, he said, are you the teacher in Israel and do not understand these things? Now that, that strongly implies that Nicodemus should have understood the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. Because the Old Testament scriptures reveal the foundation of the gospel, its foundation, its bedrock principles, were there for saint and sinner alike. Look at verses 10 and 11, which come before our text. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Peter tells us there that the Old Testament-inspired writers knew something of the glory of Christ or the truth of the gospel. There are at least three elements of the gospel that are either stated or alluded to in our text, that are a part of this foundation of the gospel. The first is the necessity of the gospel. Peter says in verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Peter's readers were a mixture of converted Jews and pagans. Both would have had as their primary scriptural resource the Old Testament scriptures. That would have been the Bible that they, as they knew it. Since the New Testament was still in the process of, of formulation. 
The background of Jewish believers would have been marked by forefathers who, by and large, had rejected God's truth. Jesus alludes to that in his ministry when he talks to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, just as your fathers, you reject the very truth that God has presented to you. You reject God. While we know the Jewish people of the Old Testament to be the earthly people of God, by and large they had rejected and their leaders had rejected the truth. From the fall of Adam to the ministry of the prophets, with the exception of an always present remnant, the earthly people of God had lived unprofitable to God and spiritually meaningless lives. <clears throat> While those converted from paganism did not have the privileges of the, Jewish, of the Jewish forefathers, they didn't have the Jewish religious um, complex and tradition, their forefathers had rejected the light of natural revelation and whatever light the truth of God that by His grace He had shown to them. So both had rejected light, rejected truth. And so had left a legacy of godlessness, sinful and aimless living. That's what Peter is referring to here when he says in verse 18, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. A look back at scriptural history and secular history revealed the legacy of fallen humanity and the necessity of the gospel. But the second element of the foundation of the gospel that we see Peter talk about is what I'm calling the atrocity of the gospel. That is another foundational element of the gospel that would have been proclaimed and taught from Old Testament scripture. Why though use such a, I don't know, expressive term why atrocity? Because in the plan and wisdom of God, the greatness of man's fall and the cost of sin required almost unfathomable measures to repair. To human reasoning, the shedding of blood, the taking of life seem unreasonable requirements for humans to be made right with God. Honestly, if we stop to think about it, even we who are converted and have minds that have been taught by Scripture, when we stop to think about it, if we just thought in merely human terms, it seems atrocious, it seems absurd that a God would require the killing of an animal, the shedding of blood, the killing of someone for the salvation of others. But such is the testimony of Old Testament Scripture. God reveals His view of the enormity and outrage of man's sin so that He uses animal sacrifice, the killing of an innocent life, the brutal shedding of blood as His requirement. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or removal of sin. 
according to Hebrews 9.22. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for the soul. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. And that's in Leviticus. From the Garden of Eden to the realm of Pharaoh, from the tabernacle in the desert to the prophecy of Isaiah, God reveals the need of a brutal sacrifice to appease His wrath against the sinner. This is the atrocity of the gospel. This is a foundational element of the gospel. But the third element is the majesty of the gospel. The scripture's revelation of both the necessity and atrocity of the gospel is is an Old Testament display of God's mercy, grace, wisdom, and love. But this is not all. Peter and other New Testament writers assure us that the gospel was no afterthought with our Heavenly Father. It wasn't a plan B. You know, there are those that teach, you may be familiar with some that have been popular over the years, who think that what God really intended was that the Jews would accept Jesus and that He would establish His kingdom, but they didn't. God had to resort to plan B. I want you to know that the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are no plan B with God. They were not a sudden decision to fix an unexpected problem. In fact, Peter says, He was foreordained, in verse 20, He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He was delivered up by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God, as Peter preached in Acts 2. So this majestic meta-narrative, or what we mean by that is this grandiose gospel story of redemption, spans as a great arch across the expanse of eternity and breaks into time unveiled in shadows and types until the fullness of time comes and the gospel is made more and more clear to lost men and women and young people. Therefore, we call Scripture gospel because it reveals the foundation of the gospel. But next, we see that we call Scripture, the Bible, gospel because it reveals the culmination of the gospel. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed, as foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for your sake, on behalf of you. After the completion of the Old Testament Scriptures, with the prophet Malachi, something strange happened. Nothing. 
There was a period, a time of silence, a time one writer has referred to as the silence of God. For about 400 years, nothing. We have centuries of prophecy and story and promise, and now nothing but silence. No genuine prophecy or written communication from the God of Israel, only silence. We can only surmise that genuine Jewish believers and even some unbelieving Jews wondered what was next. The Jewish people had been the recipients of what the Apostle Paul in Romans called the oracles of God. It was as though the biblical world waited with marked anticipation for Jehovah God to speak. And he did. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets in these last days, has spoken. Hebrews 1. But how did he speak? Well, he spoke in the person of Christ. All that led up to that had been shadows, prophecies, possibilities, promise. But now God speaks loudly and clearly through a son, the person of Christ. And it says in verse 20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. All the purposes of God are wrapped up in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who almost anonymously came on the scene in Bethlehem, which we've just, in a, an emphasized way, celebrated recently. H.R. Bromley, Bromley, the poet, expressed it this way. Uh, my family knows I always try to find a way to get this in at Christmas. It is my favorite poem. And he says it this way. <clears throat> a babe on the breast of a maiden he lies, yet sits with the Father on high in the skies. Before him their faces the seraphim hide, while Joseph stands waiting, unscared by his side. O wonder of wonders, which none can unfold. The ancient of days is an hour or two old. The maker of all things is made of the earth. Man is worshipped by angels, and God comes to birth. The word in the bliss of the Godhead remains, yet in flesh comes to suffer the keenest of pains. He is that he was, and forever will be, yet becomes what he was not. For you and for me. God speaks loudly, though many did not hear, even as they don't hear today. But he speaks in his Son. The culmination of the gospel is seen in Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. He is the pinnacle, not only of biblical history, but of world history. The gospel writers record it for us in Matthew the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. In Luke, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name 
Jesus. This is the culmination of the gospel. Not the introduction of the gospel, but the culmination of the gospel. In the person of Christ and in the passion of Christ. What does he say here in verse, eight, verse 19? But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We looked earlier at the atrocity of the gospel foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures, the taking of innocent life, the unblemished lamb. These are fulfilled in Christ and even more so. For he was not merely innocent. He wasn't just an innocent victim. He was righteous. He lived a perfect life and was worthy of glory with the Father, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Passion speaks of suffering and agony. He suffered brutality for the sake of all who believe. But there's a third aspect to this culmination of the gospel in Christ, and it is the promise of Christ. The person of Christ, the passion of Christ, and the promise of Christ. But was manifest in these last times for you through who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ gives us not only forgiveness of sin, but hope in the age to come. The, resurrect, the resurrected Christ will share his glory with all who believe. We know that's true because the gospel authors in the New Testament say so. Paul says in Colossians 3, Since you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above. For you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him, how? In glory. If in this life only we have hope in Jesus Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is but preparation for and the foretaste of what is to come, an eternity with Christ. You know, when I was a young man, I used to try in my weak way, even in my rebellious years, to be a witness to some friends I was close to, and they couldn't understand what would be so attractive about heaven. Well, that's not surprising, is it, that unbelievers would not see anything attractive about eternity in heaven. But what makes heaven, what makes eternity attractive to the believer? It is Christ. It is glory. We enjoy something of the earthly um, reminders of glory here when, when we win a championship or Somebody we pull for crosses the tape. Those are but tiny glimpses of glory. But think of eternal glory with Christ. This 
forward and upward look is not new to the New Testament church. As Hebrews 11 tells us, Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 16 By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah Sarah herself also received strength to conceive, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him, as good as dead, were, many, were born as many as the stars of the, star, of the sea and of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Then these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now these are Old Testament pro, uh, people of God. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. If what they wanted was something earthly, they could have just gone back to where they came from. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So the work of Christ is not meant to give us comfortable, successful lives on earth, in which, but something the Apostle Paul refers to as, or as the writer of Hebrews refers to as, far better. Something far better. The culmination of the gospel is seen in three great Christological events. The incarnation, that is the birth and life of Christ. The crucifixion, and the suffering and death of Christ. And the ascension, with the promised return of Christ. Scripture is gospel because it reveals the culmination of the gospel. <clears throat> but third, Scripture is gospel, and we can call Scripture gospel, as Peter does, because Scripture reveals the application of the gospel. Verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, and sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart. There has been among some a belief or understanding that matters of theology are primarily theoretical and matters of discussion among academics or pinheads. People who have no more to do but to sit around and discuss stuff the rest of us don't understand. Not for everyday Christian. Even in colleges and seminaries, we have theology courses, and then we have practical theology courses. But this dichotomy or division is mistaken and misleading. Now, it is true. I understand why we did that. Well, I went to seminary, I went to a good seminary. We had theology courses, we had practical theology courses, and I know why the difference is made. But if we're not careful, 
We can say that theology is not practical, but in the purest sense, theology is always practical and applicable. Theology is simply what the Bible teaches about God specifically and about other aspects of God's truth generally. And it's always applicable in some sense and practical. When we look at the sweep of biblical revelation, and in particular the gospel, God has never meant for us to merely think about His truth. It's not just to think about. His purpose is fulfilled in the application of truth. And so it is with our understanding of Scripture as gospel. God has always been at work calling out a people, saving a people from their sin for His glory. And Scripture is gospel because it documents that great activity of God. It shares with us the foundation of the gospel and the culmination of the gospel in Christ and then the application of the gospel in life. And so, what do we see here about the application of the gospel? We see First of all, the personal application of the gospel. It's interesting. We see in these next few verses, verses 22 and following, that Peter sees a very practical application of God's truth, those gospel truth, to his readers and to us. And even in the Old Testament, we see that. We see something like Psalm 19. I don't know how familiar you may be with Psalm 19, but it begins by saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the expanse, the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. But He moves from that general revelation of God in, revealed in nature to specific revelation of God in truth. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple, so on and so forth. Even David in his writing of Psalms, in this poetic form, reveals the, the practical truth and application of Scripture and of Gospel. The fall in Eden, in Eden killed the soul and blinded the eyes of not only the original pair, but of all their offspring. That happened by what we call federal headship. Adam was the federal head of all humans. And because he died, and Adam all died. But we have another federal head, Christ, and him all are made alive. And Adam all died. That is why the new birth or regeneration are not just important, but absolutely necessary. In our text, Peter presents regeneration or the new birth not as the result of his reader's righteous behavior, but as the cause of it. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have spiritual life, it's because God has given you life. And that regeneration was performed upon us and upon them through the instrumentation of nothing human, but by the living Word of God, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. The Word of God is the instrument by which God brings truth to bear upon the human heart, the Spirit of God igniting that and bringing life to the believer so that they can believe and obey the truth, the gospel. (coughs) 
The new birth has always been necessary for the transformation of dead sinners. This gospel thread, which runs throughout Scripture, comes right down to Peter's letter and then to us. The transforming power of the gospel has changed lives from the time of Adam to the New Testament saints right down to the present. God has been saving sinners since Adam fell into sin. They are shown the reality of their sin, God's great love for sinners, in the shedding of His own Son's blood, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God, they come to faith in Christ. You come to faith in Christ. And if you are here today, and you have never trusted Christ, if you've never looked upon this gospel, this Jesus I am proclaiming this very morning, then you come to faith by grace, even if right now there is any sense of hope or sense of drawing to Christ. That is the Spirit of God working in your soul, drawing you to a Savior who alone can save you. This is the work of God in the gospel. This is the practical application of the gospel. It is the personal application of the gospel. But we see, finally, the eternal application of the gospel. All flesh... Actually, he goes from the Word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is like grass. In what sense then is all flesh like grass, all humanity like grass, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass? Well, here is the sense in which all humanity is like grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. And isn't that true of us? We all wither. <laughs> I'm withering I'm 67 years old, you know, showing my age, which is as it is supposed to be. And his flower falls away. All that is around us is temporary. It's amazing how attached we get to the temporary. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, I do. I, I like stuff. I want comfort. But it's all temporary. The, the greatest pleasure, the finest comfort is temporary. The grass and the flower of it wither and fall away. These are reminders that our salvation is based upon and wrought by the eternal word of God. But the word of the Lord endures forever. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In Revelation 14, 6, John has a revelation of the everlasting gospel. When the hour of our death comes, we have an everlasting gospel. When the last trump sounds, we have an everlasting gospel. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Why do we sing that? Because there is an everlasting gospel that saves our never-dying soul so that we live an eternal life with our almighty, saving, gracious, godly, heavenly Father. I revert to an old hymn that kind of sums it up. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith 
and his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my strength all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Modern hymn writers wrote it this way, By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design, in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of the promise in their hearts, of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. By faith the prophets saw a day when the longed-for Messiah would appear, with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. By faith, the church was called to go in the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. By faith, this mountain shall be moved and the power of the gospel will prevail. For we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which is preached as gospel to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this gospel, this thorough, all-encompassing, life-changing, God-glorifying book that is the good news for all who rest upon it. We pray that our lives would be in some sense a testimony of this gospel and of your glory. How often we fail, how weak we are, how much we need the help of your spirit, the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives. Help us to be men and women, young people of the promise and walk by faith and your revealed will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.